You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpie people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Our fellow podster Tim Dunlop is deep in writing his latest book and cannot join us today. But Margot's with us in Comboyne, as she said. How are you, Margot? Have you come up above the floodwaters yet? Well, we're the sealed roads cut off to the coast. I've nearly emerged from five days without internet and mobile, so I have a whole new outlook on life. And mainly, I'm terribly excited to speak to Wendy McCarthy. I mean, you know, probably top three second wave feminists in Australia, certainly in terms of results and longevity of results. And what a time to talk to her. I'm, I'm really thrilled that she's agreed. Wendy McCarthy is, in fact, our guest, and you seem to be recovering from the floods, and I can't help but think, poor old Comboyne copped the fires a year ago, then it got the floods. Now you're a real pioneer woman there in Comboyne. You can't even get to Port Macquarie easily. The road's fallen into the, into the Gulf. It gives you a bit of an insight, doesn't it, Margot, just how fragile regional Australia can be at different times? The thing is, is when you live in the country, people have said to me, you've got to understand that things can change at any time. Things can go wrong at any time. People can need help at any time. I'm about to do a first aid course. You actually live life in a different way. And quite frankly, I'm enjoying it. Yes, I can tell. Well, as we all know, the last month since we last posted an episode of The Transit Zone have been eventful, especially Australian politics, and that's an understatement. In coronavirus world, the rollout of the COVID vaccines is going very, very slowly and seems incoherent administratively. Yes, we still do have a very low infection and active case environment here and in New Zealand across the ditch. Tough, stringent measures have achieved all that. Slip-ups in quarantine processes and their protocols remain a primary threat to ongoing elimination of community transmissions here in Australia. And of course, getting the nationwide vaccination process, which our PM Scott Morrison claims is not a race, but it is obviously, really into high gear is imperative despite epidemiological ambiguities around whether or to what extent vaccines will actually inhibit transmissions and how long immunity will last and the increasing spectre of SARS-CoV-2 variants, which just may elude current vaccines. All that still lies in front of us. But it is on the political stage Australia has been really roiled recently. Brittany Higgins, Christian Porter, Canberra bubble culture for women, politicians and staffers, and the nationwide marches for justice are just the headlines for some heated and passionate debates about a deep-seated and very troubling political culture, including in our National Parliament House itself, and pointing, obviously, to a wider, apparently intractable general negative culture around the status, role and equality of women here in the 21st century. Our guest, as Margot said today, is Wendy McCarthy, veteran feminist activist, thought leader and leader in many settings, public institutions such as Canberra University as Chancellor, the ABC as Deputy Chair, corporations and a host of NGOs and other civil society organisations. She's still very active politically, chairing Karen Phelps' successful 2018 election campaign as an independent in Wentworth. In 2013, Wendy was the inaugural inductee of the Women's Agenda Hall of Fame for her contribution to advancing women's interests. Wendy's memoir, published in 2000, is entitled perfectly, Don't Fence Me In. An update is due out this year. 
Wendy McCarthy, welcome to The Transit Zone. It's great to see you here. Thank you very much, Peter. Lovely to be here. You've been at the front line in some of the various ways of reform for women in Australia, and that's also an understatement. Now, before we get into today's current affairs and look at what's been going on all around us the last couple of months, I just want to go back in time for a bit of a backdrop, a memory backdrop, if you like, to what we're going to talk about today. Was it, in your opinion, the Whitlam era that saw the last major seismic shifts that brought real and lasting change for women in Australia? That's a really vexed question. There's no doubt Whitlam opened the political life to an imagination that women could matter and be somewhere and be someone and could lead change and be part of change. And that was heady. And that took us really through the next era. But I do have to acknowledge that the Liberal Party actually put forward and put through Parliament quite a lot of the legislation that didn't make it in the Whitlam times. And you really can't take that away. So I just think to myself that, you know, my tribe's female, my political party's female. I look at politics and life through a female and as much as I can, a child's agenda. What is going to happen to this woman and this child? I started doing that as quite a young woman, but not in a subconscious way. But when I started working with overseas aid, and the figure hardly has moved in 30 years, that 70% of the world's poor are female and their children go with them. So the life of a woman assigns the life and determines the life of her children to a very, very large extent. We need to remember that Actually, the most disliked Prime Minister in my lifetime, Bill McMahon, Billy McMahon, he was the person who introduced childcare as a Commonwealth issue. Now, that's remarkable. And the people who got through some of the first conventions on elimination of discrimination, Bob Ellicott managed to get that. I mean, it was subsequently ratified in a different way by the Hawke government. Malcolm Fraser stopped abortion going off the medical benefits list, with a lot of help from me and, and the Women's Advisory Council. But they never engage in the conversation the way the women of the left do. So coming back to your question about Whitlam, Whitlam enabled women to think differently. That was a matter too of respect. So people like me who were, you know, work soldiers really then working mostly on the women's electoral lobby issues, I got to be a researcher on the women's education report. We were valued for our community thinking and our community learning. And I mean, that was even then transferred by legislation to enable women to go to university who had not finished school. We saw that as normal. And I see in the contemporary world, the Liberal women are isolated from most of this. When Whitlam left, the Royal Commission on Human Relationships had not been addressed. The Fraser government did that. And a lot of those things changed the way Australia functioned. So it's never a job for one party. That's why I've never joined one. Wendy, the National Women's Advisory Council, you look back and you think what an incredible structure he set up. Dame Beryl Beaurepaire, the doyen of liberal feminism, was the chair from Vic. You were the rep from New South Wales and Quentin was the rep from Queensland and seemed to do a lot of good. How did it work and why did it work? I think it's one of the most underrated periods because the Labor Party women were very cranky about it. I remember when the people were announced, Lindsay Connors wrote that I was the only person to be given any due consideration, really, because I was the only real feminist there. 
But I, you know, I found it really interesting then that the women who, I mean, Jan Marsh was there from the ACTU. I was there basically with a family planning women's electoral lobby hat on. Beryl drove that and there were two or three things that made it different from every statutory body that I've ever chaired or managed since then. I've emulated her in terms of access to the minister, but she said to us, always go to the top because we're coming from the very bottom in terms of being appropriately considered and what we have to contribute to policy development and a general outspreading of issues around women. Therefore, we have to go to the top. So we'd be roaming around Parliament House, dropping in to see ministers, and they kind of had to see us because she gave us the imprimatur that we were to go. We had access to ministers and she put made it very clear that Liberal ministers were to see us and to listen to us and talk to us. It's a lifetime away from a woman's experience in Parliament now as I can see it. So what was the source of her power, Wendy? She was well-connected in Melbourne, both from her family who made bedge good shoes. She was of a strong family business, but the father refused to let her go into the business because he said girls didn't do that. Then she was in the war and she became radicalised in the war when the women, in, the, in the Women's Australian Air Force and when, when mm-hmm. she met women who came from different places because she'd had a rich thing. And she began to understand the connection between being excluded to aspire to do things. She'd studied meteorology for a little bit. And so that was part of her base in the Women's Air Force. And she could see the war widows, which became one of her major issues throughout life, were completely disenfranchised, disengaged, basically ignored. And she fought for them to get a pension for years. She was a woman who could see being sidelined and use the word discrimination without having a hiccup. Mm. Some of my Liberal friends still can't use the word discrimination. No, 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 we're not discriminated against, they say. Well, you are because you're not considered whole or equal and you don't sit in a line with your colleagues and have conversations. So she had that power base. Then her husband was the Lord Mayor of Melbourne and she became very, very active in picking up the Lord Mayor's charity funds, and she was the Vice President of the Victorian Liberal Party. Now, in those days, they had a male and female Vice President, and she and Jim Carlton tried for years to get that as the model throughout all pre-selection and everything else. And all the little aspiring politician women who were saying now, maybe that would be a good idea, oh, no, we don't want special privilege. Not special privilege, it's just good political sense. That's the mindset that they have to change. And Beryl was changing that mindset. And she changed that mindset for nearly all of those women who came onto that council. Beryl has sort of assigned us roles and responsibilities. She expected us to live our appointment. And then when people ask you to do that, it's not personal, it's political, and you can do it. So it was a great time of change to use it. And the other thing, Margot, that's really profoundly important, and in, and, and I'm sort of correcting you a bit, everyone yep. was told they were there, she was there in her own right. Yep. She didn't have to answer. She wasn't a rep in a corporate governance sense of a union or the family planning. In fact, family planning docked my pay when I went to the meetings, mm-hmm. which I found really quaint as I was doing their work for them Australia-wide. But anyway, let's put that aside. But she expected to live what the council stood for. 
And I've never changed, and nor has Quentin since then. And probably nor has Jan. It sounds a little bit like Kathy McGowan's philosophy in Indi. Be your best self, live your values, you know. Yeah, live your values. And, and, And I'm someone that you won't always agree with me, but you'll trust to try and do the right thing. That's right, and you'll also trust that whatever re- result I'm coming up with comes from a good place. And, I mean, when the lush motion to take remove abortion off the medical benefit schedule was heralded... What year was that, Wendy? 80, 1980, I think. The Prime Minister told Beryl that, and she said, well, that's totally unacceptable because it, you've got, it, it's scheduled for Parliament on International Women's Day, so, Malcolm, that's not going to happen. I'm standing there with my mouth open going, oh... Oh, she's telling the Prime Minister to fix up the parliamentary agenda. Yes, good. Sounds like the Prime Minister for Women, uh, Wendy. <laughs> yes, the very one. Wendy, interesting you mentioned Beau Repair being in the Air Force. I'm now wondering how many women in the armed services during the war had a mindset reshaped. My mother was in the Air Force too. She was a flight sergeant. Ah. She was she was in the health wing, if you like. She came out of the Air Force before she met my father. A fair bit later, he was off flying Lancasters in the Air Force in England, uh, out of Australia at the age of 18 or something. My mother met my father. She had her own Ford Prefect. She was a very independent woman. I'm sure my mother was not alone. There were a lot of other women coming out of the forces. Yeah, absolutely. The forces changed the women and the, a couple of the women in my childhood in a remote country area outside of Forbes were women who'd been both nurses and on the communications area in the war and I couldn't sit and listen to their stories all day long and I kind of always knew that's I was going to do something around that I thought I would always thought I was going to be a nurse because I used to love what she did and I think those women had an authority in their marriages that my mother never had and it came from that experience. And it was a different kind of authority. And I see it now with young women who've gone to work and come into a relationship. If they have their own sense of self and authority, the chances of the relationship working, from my observation, is much greater. Your generation is like uh, my mum's. So she sort of read Female Eunuch in Women's Room, got retrained, got a job and left ad. So my era is, is under there, like almost post-second wave victories. Our lives of power and responsibility were not linear and incremental. We were back fighting, you know, the affirmative action agency went, you had to, you know, you were fighting around some of the fertility issues. Aid to, you, know, you remember when, um, I can't remember what year it was, but it, it was when Basically, the Telstra deal was done with Tasmania, basically over women's uteruses. No family planning to any aid agency that said the word abortion, which is what Trump did. So that was the beginning of the, the, the sort of general slagging and sidelining of women. And I mean, I think that Chris McDivin, the energy and, and, and quite a lot of my personal friends who worked with her, I mean, Lucy Brogdon, who's a strong woman and and a powerful woman in New South Wales, you know, her mother, Sue Hook, and they they were all compatriots, all friends together, those women. So they've got some very strong daughters, but not in politics per se. They've got them in the workforce. And many of them would say, well, that's good because it's about individuality. But change doesn't happen across the community from individuality. 
And I think that's where the women, Liberal women, they've lost a generation of women. The next step, of course, is what happened after Brittany Higgins' revelations. I, I went to Canberra for the march and had a chat to Marie Coleman and she said, oh, I think it's all going to fall apart, this meeting with Morrison, etc. And the next day, she sat in the front row at that march and she looked happy. Maybe there is a next wave after all. Do you think this is a next wave, Wendy? I absolutely do. Yes, I do. But I think this next wave has to be supported by women like me in the background. I mean, I come out the foreground every now and then. I had a lot to do with that march, but my name was not attached to it. And I was propping up younger women because they need our support and approval in a way perhaps we didn't realise before. But some of the women who said, you know, ahead of me said, I made it on my own terms, and the ones below said, I made it on my own terms. Well, you know, they never did. We're all part of a line. And I think that I think there are a lot of young women there. And if they grow to trust us, you know, I've, I've mentored hundreds of women in Australia, both at a you know professional in professional sense and in a voluntary sense. The major outcome is for them to hear and trust their own voices. And as soon as they get to that point, they can do anything. You can't just take this treatment that you get. You know, look at what happened when the the woman um, from Europe went to see the Turkish Prime Minister. No seat at the table for her. Oh, they said just a mishap. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was deliberate. And Morrison doesn't read Brittany Higgins' statement, so he doesn't want to know. When he announced his, his rejig, like his women's task force and everything, I actually did think about the National Women's Advisory Council first. I thought it was really big. Most or many people said, no, it's a distraction, no, it's a con or whatever. But I felt that having that structure in place, that it gave an enormous and unprecedented opportunity for Liberal women to start telling the truth. And I think, you know, we've seen since then all of a sudden the respect for work, all recommendations yeah, and yeah. women coming up front. How, how do you read this? How do you read the political position Liberal women are in and whether you think they and branch members will take the opportunity to step up and actually assert their potential new power? I think they will. I think they'll do their very best to do that. I think the really hard thing them for at the moment, there's no apparent Liberal woman leader. They mostly were sidelined and ousted, so it'd be quite a big thing for someone emerging to, to go to them when they might not be seen to have gone on their own terms and for anyone to find out because it's all this secrecy. And men have mentors. You know, when I used to go to organisations to do this and they'd say, I don't, you know, we don't want the women to, see, to be helped. It's like the quota story. I mean, I don't care whether it's quotas or targets. Just get a plan and do it. But, and I'd say, do you realise that your boss has one or two mentors? I know one man who has four mentors. I don't know how he ever has time to go to work. Just talk about it. He does nothing. They need women who they can trust, whose life experiences they admire and professional experiences they admire, just, just to be there for them. And sometimes you don't even have to call them. I also had a wonderful woman called Joan Bielski in my life and Edna Ryan. And I mean, I'll be 80 this year and I think I could go and talk to Edna when she was 90 to tell me stories about things. The stories don't change that much. In this context, Margot and Wendy, I've got two words for you. Amanda Stoker, the Assistant Minister for Women. Whom and what does she represent within the coalition? Oh, I reckon she's the dead cat. 
Like you get poor old moderate Maurice all of a sudden Prime Minister for Women and who's her assistant, a hard right fundamentalist. However, I did read a very interesting piece in The Guardian recently that Amanda Stoker was originally a moderate and turned into a hard right fundamentalist so she could get pre-selection because that's the only way she could get pre-selection. Now, if that's the case, we have a very interesting question mark over who Amanda Stoker really is and what role she might play. The Amanda Stoker thing, you know, there's always women who who fight women's rights. There's all, and there's always a potential for splintering because of diversity and identity issues and political issues, etc. It's crucial for the second wave that women hold together with a core purpose. And I'm just wondering whether you have suggestions about how that can be done this time. Well, I think that Amanda Stoker, who I, as I understand it, was personally chosen by George Brandis to keep the flame alive for small L liberals. Yeah, look what happened to her. Yeah. So I was quite hopeful, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, there, you know, she looks like the very model of a new liberal woman emerging in a powerful role and she'll have a lot of support in the party. And then I heard an interview and she sounded like Bettina Arndt. And I yes. thought... She supports Bettina Arndt. I, I know. And I thought, how did this happen? You know, she's, deni- she's denying rape. So Amanda, I think, doesn't like women all that much. If you look at photographs and so on, you'll see that she's changed her look and so on. On the, Well, you know, we all do something or other. But, and I think that she's gone from moderate to... I can't see any evidence that she was ever a moderate, but anyway, she said she was a moderate originally. Anyone who changes with the wind like that, I find is very hard to believe. I don't know who Amanda Stoker is, but I'm sure Amanda Stoker and her three daughters, she's looking after herself. And I can't imagine how she is going to make a lot of changes for women that will be in line with the sort of research that has been around with the same answer for years. The National Women's Advisory Council commissioned the Women's Weekly to ask a question about women's rights and particularly in relation to abortion. And over 80% of respondents said it's a matter between a woman and her doctor. When we were doing the reproductive rights campaign, the pro-choice campaign in New South Wales, 50 years after I started, (laughs) still doing it, I thought about looking at, we looked at the questions there and we thought, should we do it again? But instead we got Rebecca Huntley to do a sort of shortened version of us. It's been done in between time in a more moderate way. The numbers have never shifted. 80% of women supported. And the most interesting variation in New South Wales was there was stronger support in rural areas than in city areas. Underneath that is the lack of service which led us to understand that something like a couple of thousand women a month were crossing the border to get an abortion. I mean, it was like Ireland going to London, the Irish going to London. We just need to keep remembering to go back and ask people what they think. But those things haven't changed. And that's how people like Amanda will come undone if she doesn't listen, because that's the safest listening place for women's voices in the big women's magazines where perfectly good research, quality research, and and it's readable for every woman.
You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston in Comboy in regional New South Wales. Our guest is veteran feminist activist, writer and leader, Wendy McCarthy. Wendy, we're obviously talking about the broader society, but there is a, a really big focus on what's happening in that building on the hill in Canberra. That's the culture in there just from every description I've heard is toxic, it's extraordinary, it's very, very tough on women, staffers and politicians. We had the Brittany Higgins episode a few metres from the Prime Ministerial suite and we've all seen what's happened since. What hopes do you have and how important will be the Kate Jenkins review? Well, I think Kate Jenkins review will be important. I doubt that it'll tell me anything I don't know, but I hope it does. I think the other thing about it is that we women, we're commenting on this all the time. Actually, it's not our problem in a sense. The problem is men. They need to talk to each other. They need to step up to this stuff. They need to understand they're throwing their daughters into, you know, quicksand if they're going to raise them like this. I'm not interested in doing it for men. I'm doing it for women, well, I do. Good men just do it and get on with it. When Morrison says he consults his wife, I think he just has to understand it's not Jenny's issue, but it will affect his wife and daughters. He needs to understand that it's a men's issue. And if he doesn't open that conversation and listening to Josh Frydenberg talk yesterday about everything's under control, of course we respect women. You know, weasel words. Just show us some examples. Your job now is the executive. We've done the legislation. There's a judiciary and there's an executive function. That's your job. If you haven't got enough time, give coronavirus back to the states and let them get on with it because operationally they can do it twice, at least twice as quickly as you can and more efficiently. Have your own work first. Don't bring all the women in to tell you what's wrong and talk over the top of them. Get yourself in there like the women have done many, many times. You know, how many women's commissions of various things have we been to, Margot? to work out common threads and common concerns and then off we go and do it our own way. There's a collective impulse. I know collective is a very scary word for some liberals but they can find their own synonym and just get on with it. And it's not going to change otherwise. Have you had a chance to look at the government's response to Kate Jenkins' Respect at Work recommendation? This is report. This is the one that, that Christian Porter yeah. as AG literally, literally sat on for 14 months. Now we're seeing a response. Does it look like something good to you? I've only seen the headlines, Margot, which said that they're they're definitely going to implement it, but there are caveats on it already. And they must have done a speed read because apparently no one's eyes dropped on it before. So in 24 hours, they're in charge of the whole matter. They've taken up Zali Stegall's private member's bill of um, not exempting judges or politicians from sexual harassment anymore. I think that is the very best thing. Yep. But look, we've got we, we've got the the broad. We haven't got the detail, and of course, the, the first thing that popped up into my mind is I feel this will be a very rocky road to legislation, because my feeling is that the hard right will not be happy at all, and there will be a lot of efforts to derail this. What what's your take on on what's to come? I think hard right would be sitting now working out how to make derailment of this a perfect art form. And what sort of tactics do you reckon? Oh, 
there are, you know, there's the tried and true things. They don't turn up to have a quorum. They don't have time to read it. They create a side issue. There may be another Andrew Lamming hiding in the bushes, who knows? And that's the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, we all have to work together. And if we've got some unfortunate people in our team, we just have to put them aside. But that is not healthy either. And of course, they just say no. I presume that's what they did to Malcolm Turnbull most of the time. He couldn't shift them. But this is the thing about the dynamic. I mean, Morrison has put these women in the ministry and cabinet up front. He wants them to speak. And and I would have thought that this is a time when more than one of them will go, well, actually, I am going to speak. Because if you take me down, that's bad for you. I mean, I yeah. feel a, a power shift, don't you? Yes, I do. And I want to feel it. I hope that it's going to change. And I hope that he can support it. And the other thing is, though, that you get to some points in these arguments, you know, I don't actually care what they think. I care what they do. I've seen people who hate all this stuff, but they know the moment has come when they have to agree to it. Usually they just get on with it and it's not as scary as they thought. And sometimes it's even a better world. Wendy, I reckon we see lots of areas for hope. Some days I look at it and I go, oh, we've barely shifted. Other days, I look at women in sport, for example. That looked like a, a chicken and egg for a long, long time, didn't it? We can't back women in sport because there's not enough television time. It was really just went around in circles. But lo and behold, there we are seeing our young daughters out there playing soccer, out there playing AFL. Tennis has improved, etc. So we're seeing more women in sport and it's forming its own rolling stone, isn't it, right now? On the other hand, back to coronavirus world, women have really copped it by some of the policy decisions from the Scott Morrison government during the COVID crackdown, the gig economy, hospitality. And I guess I want to turn your mind now, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Here we are in the 21st century, and we still haven't got equal wages for women. We still haven't got it. What's inhibiting it? And how do we break through that? Well, what's inhibiting it is the, I mean, if, if you can do a job seeker program, you can do equal pay for women overnight. If that's what you want to do. There's enough money there to do it. You get all that money that the one, the, some of the organisations, corporations haven't handed back, that'll do it nicely in their businesses. And the government can do it. You know, it, it's about wanting to do it. If you want to do it enough, you'll do it. Of course, there are systemic things about women-centred occupations. I remember nurses who were very badly paid until men came into the service and they said, well, we won't do this job, we're not going to work for this money. And before you knew what had happened, at least two or three of the nurse union groups are, are led by men and who've been very good union people and very good at improving workplace facilities. You need, I guess, something like the old-fashioned accord between business and labour to say this is what we need. And I mean, a classic opportunity was to make the COVID rollout an all-nurse function. There was no reason for GPs to do this, except someone's done a deal and it will be about money. So nurses won't get any more, GPs will get more, taking the responsibility of ministering. They could have done a perfect nurse practitioner profile, have a centre, one GP to 45 nurses if they want that supervision and responsibility and that's fair enough and then guess what we have many more people vaccinated when i came off the drum last night the biggest response i've got was from nurses thank you for saying that you know i just think it's like bread and butter um but thank you for saying that of course you know there are professors of nursing in australia pretty well in every university now and that's the question morrison can't see them because he knows nothing about this he doesn't see a woman's lens 
all of that talent is wasted. So when you come back to equal pay, well, you pretty well have to go to the, the public service to get it and there aren't that many jobs left anymore. In other places, you know, sometimes it's the clusters of women and sometimes it's history. It's not actually about money except for the women who don't get it. One question, I, I noticed Maurice Payne talking about the Women's Task Force thingo, talking about filling in the gaps. We've done a lot, we want to fill in the gaps. And I just wondered whether she's made some arrangement with Morrison that she'll get certain concrete outcomes provided Liberal women don't come up with anything too imaginative or different. I've found her very disappointing in this time and I'm. that doesn't mean I'm not going to support her, but I think she missed an opportunity to demonstrate her leadership capacity to Australian women. And, and it's a real lost opportunity for her. I don't know what she means by filling in the gaps because if she thinks there are gaps in legislation or there are gaps and so on, the gaps are in, in women being, the voices being a considered part of the conversation. And you, there are many strategic ways you can make that happen. I'm not sure that bringing a group of women's organisations together in a couple of months will do that. It will help, but many women will just feel it's about being sidelined and not really listening. And who gets to go will be a very important part of it. Well, that's how you divide and conquer, really, isn't it? Wendy, could we finish our conversation with something that's very close to your heart now in your life, and that's early childhood education. I want to go back to a show I used to present on Radio National way back in the 80s. In fact, when you were deputy chair at the ABC, it started. And uh, it's still going as Life Matters on Radio National. It's been a great show. It's kept on going. Fantastic. And there, and there was a piece of research that I, just stuck in my mind, a number of pieces of research have stuck in my mind from that time. But this one particularly, they experimented with a very young baby, probably about the age of my granddaughter now, about eight months or a bit younger. And they had the same baby, dressed it as a little girl, conventionally as a little girl with pretty pink clothes, etc., and showed it to people and handed it around. People went, oh, hello, darling. Hello, sweetheart. Aren't you a lovely girl, you know? Then they dressed it up a bit more boy-like. And, of course, everyone said, G'day, tiger! You know, picked him up and said, Oh, my little man, you know. So it's obvious, isn't it, in many ways? But it was interesting research, I thought, because there we're glimpsing the earliest stages of shaping of attitudes, aren't we? My children didn't have that. You know, I just refused to do pink or blue. My daughter, and my daughter said, you know, her life was probably ruined by never having a Barbie doll. <laughs> I gave you a bride doll at one stage, you know, I thought that was the closest I could go to it because a few people in the family were getting married. <laughs> but I think that it's the assumptions that begin at birth. We spent years working against that and we, that's, when, that's when we brought out that amazing woman from the, um, the US to talk about unconscious bias. And she did programs on ABC and SBS and we dragged around boardrooms around Australia. And then people say, you know, have you heard about unconscious bias? And I go, yeah, I did that in the 80s, mate. Did it. You know what? It's not unconscious. We want a girl to be like that. We want a boy to be like that. Little tiger, little princess. Perfect. Yes. Just adorable. And the other aspect, Wendy, is, as you've seen it, I've seen it, we've all seen it, little boys so who maybe get a, a younger sister. And you see that capacity to nurture in boys very early. But I reckon it's ironed out of them pretty smartly, isn't it? I think it can be. I'm not sure that always is, but I think it can be. And I think they may, they may then 
have to find it again when they become if and when they become parents, or just nice to their mothers, really, <laughs> especially their older mothers. <laughs> I do think that we those sex stereotypes in the Whitlam era, we did a lot of work on that. That's where Gough, I always think, was the the prime minister with an amazing imagination. He had a vision, you know, the vision thing traps a lot of people, but he could see it. And, and he listened, he listened to women. Those stereotypes take us to places where we see men are the people we go to in a crisis in a business. In my experience, they're not always the best people to cope with it. I do think it's improved. I do think it's improved. I think young men are choosing different ways of being parents. And I think young men, I mean, I, every now and then, you know, I go off the, well, I walk a dog in the park every morning. My husband had, you know, one of those carry moors with a baby attached. I see people with backpacks and babies and yesterday I was walking down the road and I saw a father walking with twin girls and he's the, he's the house husband. Those men will have to, will need to make it very clear that they are still normal functioning men even though they decide to be house husbands. That's part of the process that will change it and if their fathers stick behind them, that will make a very big difference. And that's where that change will happen in the community, the day-by-day -day life in the community. And I, I think Morrison is in deep trouble with the women in Australia at the moment. And the women in Australia have a lot of influence. Apart from being 51%, we have families. I'm the matriarch of 48, big Christmas lunch. <laughs> but, and, you know, we have some fabulous fights. But the fact is we can have discourse and we can talk about ideas about what it is. And I've got, you know, tradie nephews who mind, he minds his daughters when his wife comes down to me and stays from the country because she's doing a master's in nursing. They're doing it differently, but they're not interested in converting it politically because they can't, they can't see any hope in the system. I really want hope to be in the system. And you know, when he, for men, there are huge and lasting rewards which don't get talked about very much. And I think that next generation of men is discovering them, that they actually have relationships with their kids. Yeah. That they have yeah. deeper relationships with their kids that last. They're not absent fathers or slightly alienated fathers anymore. They've actually got kids that they have a relationship with. And that perhaps that reward, that social reward, that psychological reward should be highlighted a bit more maybe. I think COVID helped that too. It also, I think it also helped people understand though the importance of the physical structures they live in. You know, it's one thing to have a small apartment and go to work, but you imagine, you know, a two-bedroom apartment in a high-rise building trying to do two jobs inside. It must have been tough. And I think all the moves we're seeing at the moment, this is where there's no forward thinking at the top. And that's why people dismiss government. Because if people had done demographic planning and thinking about it, this shift to the regions can be one of the most productive things that can possibly happen in our lives. And finally, we had a beautiful NBN. I didn't realise, Wendy, that your activism started with a, an association to um, insist that men have the right to be at the birth of their children. Yes. And Quentin's activism began with an association called ORCH, which was yes. an association to insist that parents be given some accommodation in hospitals for very sick young children. So, you know, people just forget feminism helps men too. Oh, of course it, it does. And I know that there's a backlash and everything, but I just hope that, that women can go, look, we disagree about many things, but there's core things we agree on and we are going to unite on those core things and keep pushing this. The one thing that women 
have a very big issue with still is money. So there aren't very many women around with a lot of money to be able to invest in other women. And if corporations and institutions aren't supporting them, it makes it doubly difficult where they'll normally, you know, support, you'll get, in, you'll get institutional money. You saw that in Wentworth. Our money came from people up and down the streets and so on. And we, and we ran a campaign on a very small amount of money. And other money was pouring in, and the next in the next round, they went worth nearly drowned in money compared with what we had, and that's a deliberate decision to support a bloke, to reflect their values. We as women don't need to die wealthy if we've been lucky enough to accumulate some money. Yep. And if we've, in my view, if our children are educated and have good lives and good, proper jobs and so on, they can get on with it. And anything we've accumulated. In my case, you know, I would say I've I've managed to earn a living as a feminist. <laughs> well, I look forward to your to your latest book, then, Wendy, to find out how. <laughs> say yes to adventure and think about it later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll do. Wendy McCarthy, it's been just beautiful having you in the transit zone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Margot. It's been a lot of fun and very. Very exciting, really, to remember and revive memories, and that gives me an energy for at least a week. Thank you. I'd like to say I'm completely honoured. My mum died last year, Wendy, 80, oh. 80, 84, and I look at you and she would just, she'd be just delighted that I'd interview oh, you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm delighted you did too. And our guest in the Transit Zone, veteran feminist activist Wendy McCarthy. That update to her memoir, Don't Fence Me In, is due out this year, as I said earlier, so keep an eye out for it. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. Your comments, questions, ideas for podcast episodes are always welcome. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.